We are live. Hello, everybody. Um, this is the First Impressions podcast. I am your podcaster, Kristen, and I am joined today by my dear friend, Maggie, as always. Hello. And we are here to talk about our love for Jane Austen and give a big middle finger to all the haters who think she is just romance in bonnets. Although today we will be talking about volume two of Persuasion. So you got to admit, this time they might have a little bit of a point. Well, we're but not going to talk about bonnets, though. Yeah, no, right. They're not much talk about bonnets. And I, for one, I'm really enjoying this. So, um, (laughs) we've said before, like we've said before repeatedly, that Jane Austen is more than just romance. However, there is certainly nothing wrong with romance. No, and it's masterfully done in volume two, which we're going to talk about today. It is so masterfully done. But before we get into it, We'll just give you guys a recap or a reminder um, for those of you who listened to episode uh, part one of Persuasion a long time ago. Previously on First Impressions podcast. (laughs) Yeah, exactly right. (laughs) Um, So what did we talk about, Maggie, last time? Well, we talked about part one, as you just said, uh, which basically takes us through the backstory of Anne, her family, and Captain Wentworth. And her family moves and we travel with Anne to all to her friends and relations homes. And then we travel to Lyme. And I think we went right up to the part where Louisa Musgrove cracks her head on the pavement. She, yes, she was too precipitate by half a moment. Um, yeah. It's a big dramatic end. Oh, my God. Because why? Because she wouldn't be persuaded. So, <laughs> Oh, snap. Wait, are you trying to say the theme of persuasion in this book? There actually might be a theme about people being persuaded and sort of what happens to Louisa. Oh my gosh. I should have listened to part one. (laughs) Then I would have known. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And and sort of what happens um, to Louisa in part one is that she's trusting Captain Wentworth to catch her. And he's not prepared to catch her in this instance, just like he may or may not have been prepared to catch Anne when he was asking her to make the leap of getting engaged to him. And, I see um, what you did there and <laughs> I like it. <laughs> thank you. I thank like you. It. And, um, you know, we, we've sort of established who all the characters are. And now um, after, you know, all of this stuff happens, Anne is sort of um, left alone at Upper Cross briefly and thinking, wow, this place used to be so full of life. That's where her, the Musgroves live. That's where her family lives. And there's this moment where she thinks uh, she was the very last to be at the cottage there because everyone else went to Lyme to nurse Louisa. So Anne was the very last, uh, the only remaining one of all that had filled and animated both houses, of all that had given Uppercross its cheerful character. Um, a few days had made a change indeed. If Louisa recovered, it would all be well again. More than former happiness would be restored. There could not be a doubt, to her mind there was none, of what would follow the recovery. A few months hence, and the room now so deserted, occupied but by her silent, pensive self, might be filled again with all that was happy and gay, all that was glowing and bright in prosperous love, all that was most unlike Anne Elliot. And that like there's... Sorry, go ahead. With, with that passage that is devastating to me, readers, we are finally, listeners, we are finally beyond the worst. The worst is behind us now. And I can enjoy volume two 
Because what's going to happen for our beloved heroine, Anne, is that things are going to start looking up. <laughs> There's There seems to be a lot of, especially in part one, where... And this you, it made me think of this when you were reading that passage because it says that she's the last. She is kind of the one who gets left behind a lot. Oh, yeah. Forgotten, stunted aside, um, for, you know, not thought of. Yeah. And uh, Bay and I actually just this e- earlier this evening, we watched um, the most recent BBC movie version of Persuasion. And as much as I spoiler alert, dislike it. Um, they do a good job of showing that every time they go somewhere or walk somewhere, Anne's just kind of like trailing behind. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how she feels about her life at this point. It's exactly. And that's exactly how it is. I mean, living with her family, they're, they're just, oh, it's only Anne, you know, yeah. in this, in this group of lively people, you know, she's sort of seen as kind of an old spinster and everybody forgets to think of her. And one of the reasons everybody forgets to think of her is that they're all having their own little uh, tussles with one another and their, their own little domestic disputes and she's just sort of an elegant person who's above it all and just listens to them patiently where they, they bitch about, oh, my mother-in-law doesn't give me precedence or whatever. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, smaller children appreciate her, though, because she yes, plays smaller children appreciate her. People who really need things appreciate her. Just mm-hmm. like when the accident happens at Lyme, everybody turns to her because right. actually everybody's been turning to her this whole time. Solve my problems. Listen to my problems. Anne. Yeah. And she's sort of been this quiet psychiatrist. She's sort of like the family, Fanny price, except for people talk to her a lot more. Right. Um, they just see her as there for their own convenience. But once things really get hard, she's the person that they, they turn to. And the person that Wentworth turns to for guidance as well, she's the rock of this group. Do you think if this was a modern novel, there would be a point where Anne just kind of snapped and lost it and was like, oh, my God, I can't listen to you people and your stupid problems anymore. Take care of yourself. I'm out. And then just like runs out, slams the door and has this big moment where she just kind of tells everyone to go F themselves. Yes, I completely agree with you. And I think a modern audience would cheer her for doing that. Right. You're kind of longing for that because, you know, she recognizes what's going on and you're like, come on, Anne. But you just well, you don't get that. In a, yeah. Culturally, we've changed so much that now it's the the idea of you and your independence and you deserve, you deserve happiness. That was simply not, you, you were part of an because ecosystem. Because I'm worth it. Yeah, I'm worth it. Yeah. Like, no, one would, no one would tolerate or respect that kind of behavior then. Then it was absolutely imperative for you to pay your duty to your parents and to your elders. And you were part of an ecosystem and you had to accept that. You had to accept your downtrodden state. And that's not only is that the time period, but that's sort of England, right? Like America, we come here and we have our individualism and we, we sort of develop this culture in the 80s of the me, 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 like not to get yeah. into like American culture, but like the, we, we have shifted towards I'm so awesome and I deserve it all when well, that was simply not a way of life or thinking. From the British have, you know, we say the stiff upper lip, mm-hmm. everything can be born, mm-hmm. um, kind of a this too shall pass. In this country, for sure, from the very beginning, we have valued individual right and individual freedom above societal good. That's right. Um, and, and in a lot of ways, that, of- has, that has driven us to our current problems, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which we won't get into on, a, for, on our First Impressions podcast. We'll save well, that for our that. like American Politics Today podcast. Yeah, like, right. Our other <laughs> podcast where we just 
um, about politics. Well, did and you also guys know that we have a political podcast where we talk smack about? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we just don't record ourselves because no one wants to hear it, um, or we'd be arrested. <laughs> right. You know. Um. You know. In Idaho, I can buy a, a gun anytime I want, unlicensed, no training. I throw it in my purse. And but you know, gosh darn it, that's your right, Kristen. Gosh darn it, I'm free because a well-regulated militia is essential yeah, to the protection. Right. <laughs> I am free to accidentally shoot myself or anyone else in the face, and um, your baby can shoot you too. That I know, I know. Oh my it's God. Great. Okay, let's Look, not. Do, we should not, not talk about this. Yeah, we should. Um, uh, but I think that is an excellent point that you're making. Um, we. And not just Americans anymore. I would say like most European audiences, if this was a movie or a book, you want that kind of payoff moment where the heroine finally stands up for herself and like just bad people get their comeuppance. She gets her big moment to stand up and tell everyone what's what and storm out. But that just would not ever have probably even occurred to Jane Austen. No, or, or yeah, or anybody. And, um, yeah, and, and there is an episode of Top Model, by the way. This may be a digression that I edit out, but you may remember a couple of years ago, there's an episode of Top Model with Tyra Banks where there were a bunch of American girls and then a couple of European girls. And the European girls. I did were not watch that one. That was the season I stopped watching. They, um, there was a European judge as well, and I forget what supermodel was on it, but the American was girls were like, I don't think so. The American girls were like, yeah, I'm so awesome. Look at me. I'm the next top model. And the European girls were like very quiet. And they're like, oh, I guess I'm okay. I guess I'm not that great. And it was the European um, panelist who was like, that is such a European thing. That Mm -hmm. is so not, you know, that's where it's coming from culturally is that uh, you don't have the confidence of an American. And so yeah. and there may be some, some, you know, I don't know if that, how true that is, but that's certainly one person's perception of women in Europe. And they, they may just culturally not have the same influence. Um, but I completely agree. Yeah, we would. And, and um, any kind of climax to a, a movie adaptation, like Clueless style, right? Right. Um, we have to have Anne going, oh my God, I can't take it. <laughs> Um, I think that it, it's a mark of Austin's brilliance, though, that even though we don't have that, we don't we still love Anne and we still see her strength. Yes. And that's something that people struggle with with Fanny as we, we talk about so in our mental park episodes. In her life, as so mm-hmm. much of Anne's inner thoughts that we we see so much of, of Anne's inner life that we see her strength and we see her value. And even though there are these passages where she meditates on her her depression and unhappiness she still has a that backbone where she thinks you know what i i don't think i was wrong so she has that to fall back on she has her morality to fall back on which is certainly stronger stronger uh than wentworth's as we've discussed and she has her sense of right and wrong and her ability to hold her head up high in a value a certain amount of value for herself in contrasting her own disposition with her crazy sisters um, who are nightmares. Yeah. Um, I think that it actually you know, it's hard for her more character to be so restrained. Um, yes. It's incredible. In our, I mean, restrained. you know, to look at a Pride and Prejudice, for example, a character like Lydia, it's always easier mm-hmm. to just kind of like say whatever. And current day now, I suffer with this to just kind of say whatever thought pops into your head or actually do lose your cool and yell at people. Um, it's much harder 
to keep all of that inside and not show what you're feeling. Oh man. And that's so funny that you said um, that because there is, that is actually a part of Wentworth's character. And even though Anne is not like that, Mm -hmm. that is actually what she values about, about him. There's this whole passage where she's talking about Mr. Elliot, a suitor that will appear in volume two, comparing and contrasting him with Frederick Wentworth. And she thinks to herself, you know, Mr. Elliot is very smooth and plausible and everybody likes him. He never causes offense. I don't feel like I can trust him because yeah, I love that word that plausible. I love the use of that word there <laughs> because she always says everyone is always, you know, there's she, I think she's talking to Lady Russell or yeah, um, she's, she's thinking. About, and they're like, what is it about Mr. Elliot? And that rubs you the wrong way. And she's like, I literally can't tell you. I don't know what it is, but I feel it in my gut. Something is not right. Yeah. And what what she says is kind of right because she, she feels that it's easier to trust than sincerity mm-hmm. of a person who sometimes says a careless or hasty thing, because that means that their thoughts are at the surface and you know, their real thoughts are coming out sometimes. Yeah. They're right below the surface. And so you can trust that those people mean what they say because they're not in full right. control of all their feelings at all times. Whereas Mr. Elliot is I would say Anne is in full control of her feelings at all times, but I would also say that she's stopping them with a great uh, amount of willpower, and that they could easily spill out if she w- didn't have that spine, that backbone. And people can tell when she is upset, like at the end of the book when she reads the letter and everyone thinks she's sick and she has to go home immediately. Oh, I love that part. She's like she began not to understand a word they said. I completely understand where she's come, what that's like, and it's just like mm-hmm. so emotional. She's like, I can't even listen to you right now. I'm just locked in a glass box of emotion. To quote Anchorman. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, we also talked about um, Wentworth being kind of a dick. And I just, dis- well, I guess I can't say I disagree. Look, I'm going to walk it back. But he apologized for it. He apologized. Yes. Well, I'm going to walk it back too. And, um, and we could talk about this sort of at the, at the wheat sheaf as well, but we got a really thoughtful, you know, letter from one of our listeners, Louise, who really made um, a case for Wentworth being, yes, you know, but just human. I mean, it's a, it's a human behavior, which is in agreement with what Maggie had said on the last podcast. And, I'm not I'm not in disagreement with that. It is certainly hum, human. And I guess my problem is I just can't imagine I mean we're all different in this world. I just can't imagine myself behaving that way. Like I imagine myself so think of me in a in a current, you know, um a a, a modern day situation. So I'm imagining myself in this situation. What if I was, um, you know, we were king and queen of the prom in a rural town in Idaho, right? Me and my beloved. And we were going to Boise State. He had an amazing football scholarship. I was going on my cheerleading scholarship. We were going to rule the world at Boise State when we got engaged. We were 18 years old, right? Crazy young kids. Then he gets an injury in a pickup game of basketball, where which ruins his football career forever, and he's not going to college. He doesn't have the scholarship. And he's like, you know what, honey? You're still going to college. You're still going to go out there in the world. The whole world is out there for you. And I just can't be a part of it. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to work for my dad's business. It's a very, you know, it's a great business or whatever. I'll, I'll have a good job, you know. And I'm thinking to myself, the, the young in love woman, 
you know, why does he want to abandon me? Why doesn't he see our life together? Does he just want to go sleep with like the barfly women in a rural Idaho town? He just wants to go fool around. He doesn't really want me. And so I peace out and I go to college and I study abroad and I do amazing. I major in fashion design and major in the history of polka dots. And then I go to law school because I'm just so great. And I go to law school and I do really well. This and then there's really this case, detailed. <laughs> there's this case that I win in my like first year of law school where so everything hinges on and everything hinges on the fact that I know that you shouldn't take a shower after you get a perm. Oh, and so I God. find out that the girl <laughs> I'm in is lying. Oh wait, that's legally blocked. But so imagine this whole scenario. So I'm the world is my oyster. I've gone out, I've been successful. Say that I then come home. I finally, you know, local girl made good and coming home. I'm going to show him everything that he threw away. And his father's business has gone bankrupt. He's, it's gone under. And he's tending bar. He has, he's very poor. He's got nothing. And I walk into the bar and I see him there. And it's eight years later. Time is a little hard on him, but he's still got those face, that face and those, those brown eyes that I fell in love with. And I see him there drying a glass. I can't imagine myself not dissolving into a puddle, just feeling this pang of longing and love for someone. And I always do. Like when I, when I, when I even see them again or in their presence again, I, I know I would immediately feel it. And I just don't understand people who could suppress that emotion or not feel that emotion. I know he felt that pang and why he would like suppress it in anger. I could never do that. I yes, could never Kristen- do that. But Kristen, not everyone is the same. Yeah. So that's where we'll leave that conversation. I because I I, I, I acknowledge that. Though. That sounds awesome. <laughs> There's gonna be It's um, like it's like a little bit sweet home Alabama and a little bit legally blo- so basically just take every Reese Witherspoon movie and yeah. mash them up and she could yeah. do a modern persuasion. And I'm gonna. It's, it's gonna be this amazing, like Daniel Steele or or whoever pop boiler like romance novel where, you know, the chemistry is there, and he's this rugged man who's like, you know, this amazing masculine guy, and you know, we wind up in bed and it's a torrid affair. Hey. Yeah, <laughs> that's where it's going. <laughs> Tell me more, Kristen. No, seriously, <laughs> you'll just more. have to read the book. You'll just have to read the book. Um, I'd read that book. Uh, <laughs> okay, let's get back. Let's get back to actual part two of persuasion. This was a That's delightful a uh, side story, and like I said, I'd watch the shit out of that movie. Um, <laughs> so we're basically with Anne. She's kind of chilling at what is it? Upper Cross. Upper Cross. Right, but then she goes to Bath. Yeah, so this is the story quickly pivots in volume two is all about her life in Bath. And she's not thrilled about going there. And I love the description of of Bath where she sees the low smoking buildings in the rain and just thinking about Austin's experience in Bath, which was in the later part of her life, the part that had already passed because she's now living, you know, in Chawton in a, a rural area when she's writing Persuasion. But she had spent many unhappy years in Bath. In writing about it, you just get the feeling, you know, you, the, the, her impressions of the city come out and she's like, oh, I hate that place. Think of how many unhappy. When uh, we were know. watching the movie and I got up for some reason to get something and I was like, oh, Bath. And Bay's <laughs> like, what's wrong with Bath? And I, I kind of had to, I tried to think of a way to explain it. And I said, well, 
It's kind of like, remember when you were in middle school or high school and everyone would go to the mall to hang out? And it's like the place to be to to see and be seen, but it's still just a mall. Like everyone's hanging out at Spencer's Gifts, but it's not really <laughs> that cool. You know what I mean? Like that's yeah. in my head. It's trendy to be there, but there's it's not that great. It's vapid. <laughs> like like a lot of these social yeah. scenes, there's a lot of vapidity. On second thought, let's not go to Camelot. It's a silly place. <laughs> and, you know, people are all about the little social maneuverings. And when Anne gets there, it's very obvious that her her father and sister, who are, are very vain people, are all about, they're like, look at our amazing apartments in this tiny town. Three townhouse drawing room. rooms. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. And and Anne thinks, this is ridiculous. He was just a land, mm-hmm. you know, the landowner of a huge estate. Yeah. And now he's talking about two walls, perhaps 30 feet asunder and saying how great they are. It, it really yeah, is. They just live happen. to compare themselves to other people. They, they just live to be superior to other people. It doesn't matter what it is. I loved that passage um, the couple times that I read the book. Um, it always, when they're showing off their house to Anne and she's just basically disgusted, that passage in particular always stuck out as a, her, I, I don't know. I, the contempt she has for her father and her sister is really sad because she has to be with them all the time. Yeah, but she really has like no respect for them. And it's just sad to be trapped with people like that. It's interesting too, in that she, she admits and Mr. Elliot admits as well that she has a certain kind of pride, a real mm-hmm. pride in, in herself and her family, as opposed to this, um, fawning, obsequious sort of pride. Oh, look at our rich relations. Anne has Anne draws away from that kind of attention seeking because she's mm-hmm. like, no, being proud of who you are and being proud of yourself doesn't mean you go chasing after other people. It means right. or spend hours poring over your family's old book, <laughs> baronetage or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is so funny too. Um, so she gets to Bath, and who does she find there? But the same Ooh, handsome, Kristen, tell me. The, but the same handsome man who noticed how beautiful she looked when that brisk wind beautified her in Lyme, it's the same guy. But and who could it turns it be? out to be her <laughs> it turns out to be her cousin, Mr. Elliot, the heir Great. to the Wait, I'm sorry. Did you say her cousin? Their kids are gonna look so weird. <laughs> you don't even know. <laughs> I'm sure it'll Supposedly. be fine. Uh, all of our friends who are genetic counselors who are listening to this will be like, actually, you'd have to have quite a few closer pairings than cousins to resolve. Oh, yeah, blah, two blah, cousins blah, blah. is actually totally, for the most part, totally okay. I mean, you don't want to do that generation after generation, but from what I understand, it's actually okay. But um, yeah, but this is who Mr. Elliot is, and I just want to read a passage. And we always we already sort of talked about how he, uh, Anne finds herself enjoying his company. Mm-hmm. But um, Lady Russell sees an opportunity for more. She had, sees an opportunity for Anne to get married to Mr. Elliot. He's clearly interested in Anne. And it would be an elevation of Anne Elliot to Lady Elliot, who her mother was. And I think that um, that is the key for um, – and doesn't Lady Russell say that too? Doesn't she say, yeah, you know, and- to, to see you <laughs> occupy the same – you know, place as your mother because she was close friends with Anne's mother. Um, and so I think that's kind of why one of the reasons why Lady Russell kind of pushes Mr. Elliot a lot. Yeah. And um, Anne sort of pow- finds that a powerful inducement. But as soon as she thinks about Mr. Elliot proposing to her, she goes, no. And there's yeah. part later Gross. in the book where she's like, <laughs> she's like, even if Frederick Wentworth and I never get married, 
our division, you know, when we're divided forever, it's going to have the same effect as if we got married, because I would never think of another man. And Austin kind of makes fun of that. She's kind of like, oh, well, such high wrought musings of eternal <laughs> constancy was they were spreading purification all the way to wherever she's going. It, it's a weird passage, actually, because Austin kind of makes fun of her heroine uh, a lot, who she otherwise seems to like. But um, anyway, just to get get an idea of who Mr. Elliot uh, is, this is the passage about the hasty thing. So Mr. Elliot was rational, discreet, polished, but he was not open. There was never any burst of feeling, any warmth of indignation or delight at the evil of or good of others. This, to Anne, was a decided imperfection. Her early impressions were incurable. She prized the frank, the open-hearted, the eager character beyond all others. Warmth and enthusiasm did captivate her still. She felt that she could so much more depend upon the sincerity of those who sometimes looked or said a careless... God damn it. A careless... Shh, quiet. <laughs> Hi, Suki. No, no. Yeah, that's my dog, Suki. I'll have to edit that out. We'll get to um, that in new business. Yeah. She felt that she could so much more depend upon the sincerity of those who sometimes looked or said a careless or hasty thing than of those whose presence of mind never varied, whose tongue never slipped. Mr. Elliot was too generally agreeable. Uh, various as were the tempers in her father's house, he pleased them all. He endured too well, stood too well with everybody. Okay. So that seems to be pretty much exactly what you were saying earlier. Yeah. And there's an additional um, detail that she thinks, which is actually very important, which she thinks, you know, Mr. Elliot, one of the things that he constantly wants to talk about is Mrs. Clay. Now, mm -hmm. Mrs. Clay, you may or may not remember her as a character, but she is the daughter of Maggie's favorite character, John Shepard, the lawyer, <laughs> who um, it's true. He's pretty. John Shepard is the true hero. Of this entire book. And my only regret is that he does not come back at the end. <laughs> so she can get a little more John Shepard time. But Whatever, he's great. She's a poor widow. She hangs out with the Elliot family. She's become sort of a Harriet Smith to Elizabeth's, you know, highfalutin Emma type character. And um, really does not belong in the family, but has insinuated herself into the family. And Mr. Elliot sees this and Anne sees this. And Mr. Elliot's always making these insinuations to Anne, like, yeah, we got to do something about Mrs. El Mrs. Clay. She's going to marry your dad and then you'll all be demoted. Because what would happen is Mrs. Clay married, you know, Sir Elliot, Sir Walter, is that Mrs. Clay would be elevated above all the women. Elizabeth would no longer be the mistress of the house. She would have to go second. And Mrs. Clay could also have a child, baby, boy, which would then inherit the estate, uh, which would disinherit uh, uh, Mr. Elliot, the cousin, the cousin who will inherit. And what we eventually find out is his obsession with Mrs. Clay comes from this very fact. He does not want her marrying Sir Walter. But that motivation is within him, and we don't know it right away. Um, we just mistrust him because Anne mistrusts him. There's a lot of pieces of the persuasion plot. And maybe it would be better to say there's a lot of pieces that inform characters' actions and give you insight into their motivation that you don't actually find out until the very end. Yeah. 
So you're kind of thinking, I remember the first time I read Persuasion at the very end being like, but what was the deal with Mr. Elliot? Like, why then was he always trying to get, oh, and then he ends up marrying Mrs. Mrs. Clay, so she won't marry. Okay. Like, you kind of, you're wondering, 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 and then boom, you kind of figure it out right at the end. (laughs) Because he doesn't seem to have any any negative motive. It's totally, you know, believable that he just wants to be part of the family again. And she sort of believes that too. But when, but she doesn't, totally trusted because for so many years he had been not interested in being part of the family. And it's kind of funny in the internal monologue when she has, when he, when he has dropped names of former associates or alluded to former practices and pursuits, it suggested things uh, not favorable of his past, that he had been a dissipated person. And I love this sentence. It's, she saw that there had been bad habits that Sunday traveling had been a common thing. <laughs> and I was like, Sunday traveling, holding my, clutching my pearls. But, she, but apparently that was, you know, I think Mr. Elliot is a God didn't travel, you know, kind of thing. So. Mr. Elliot is, I think, one of the more difficult. And again, I don't want to like harp on the whole modern versus contemporary reader thing, but. I think Mr. Elliot is a character that's a little difficult for someone from our time to kind of unlock because when you find, I mean, he's going to inherit. Right. In this circumstance where Mrs. Clay marries Sir Walter and they have a child and that child's a son and the son survives the child. You know, there's a lot of things that would have to happen. So his whole like plotting and machinations, they, um, they don't always seem to be true or not make a lot of sense. Um, but I think once we have Mrs. Smith kind of just fill in the blank about his character, because his character is kind of a blank because he's just always polite and always affable and always says the right thing. And he dissed them many years ago, but nobody really knows why. But once those blanks get filled in, you're like, Oh, Oh, he's just an asshole. Okay. Yes. (laughs) Like, no, he is like, that's okay. He's actually just a jerk. Okay. There is another thing about him that's said about him that is so Austin that honestly, I've read this book so many times. I never caught it until this time. Tell but me, Kristen, read it, read it. When, um, when Anne first meets him, she thinks his manners were an immediate recommendation. And on conversing with him, she found the solid so fully supporting the superficial Mm. that she was his first, as she told Anne, almost ready to explain, can this be Mr. Elliot? Oh, so that's Lady Russell. But that that phrase, the solid, so fully supporting the superficial, could anything be more Austin, right? Because mm-hmm. we're talking about like manners make the man and you have to have a moral foundation as well. And um, Austin evaluates people on the entire spectrum, the solid and the superficial. Right. So let's let's talk about, um, this is jumping pretty far ahead mm-hmm. if we wanted to go through... Um, Linearly, but let's talk about what Mrs. Smith tells Anne about yeah, Mr. Elliot. Because I found this whole section, it's very interesting about Mrs. Smith's character. It's very interesting about Mr. Elliot's character. And just to get us started, it seems a little shitty of Mrs. Smith to like kind of be simpering to Anne a little bit when she thinks she's engaged to Mr. Elliot. And then when she finds out she's not to be like, Oh, let me tell you how awful he is. 
Like, oh, why man. didn't you tell me that when you thought I was marrying him and help me from, you know, not marrying a jerk? Um, there's a lot of things to unpack with that, though, that have to do with a lot of status, power, and economics. But for me, the number one thing that makes Mr. Elliot a horrible person is that when Mrs. Smith's husband died, he wouldn't even be bothered to write a letter yeah, to help, help her, her get out some of, of the difficulties. The ultimate in selfishness. And I mean, talk about ungentlemanly. Oh, yeah. So so Mr. Elliot is just black at heart. He's just an evil guy. He befriended Mrs. Smith and her husband, who were at the time wealthy. He was at the time poor. And he took advantage, you know, of Mr. Uh, Mr. Smith's friendship. Mr. Elliot did. He was always, um, you know, they were always... Uh, he, Mr. Smith was always helping out Mr. Elliot with Paying money, things, lending him money. Yeah. And that's um, actually, I have an, a letter that Mr. Elliot wrote Mr. Smith when he was still poor and Mr. Smith was still rich. And it's so shocking to read it because when you read it, you already know that when Smith passed away, kind of a pauper, he designated Mr. Elliot as the executor of his will because they were such good friends. But Mr. Elliot won't do anything as the executor. He won't help Mrs. Smith, who's now indigent, poor, and disabled. He won't help her at all. He won't lift a finger. And he's like, I don't don't care about you. I don't have the time to deal with you. When he got so much from these people at the beginning of his, his, his life. So, for example, this letter is Mr. Elliot writing to Mr. Smith when Mr. Elliot was still poor. Dear Smith, I have received yours. Your kindness almost overpowers me. I wish nature had made such hearts as yours more common, but I have lived three and 20 years in the world and have seen none like it. Um, So, you know, it's just this incredibly fawning, you know, you're such a great guy and he got all this help from him. And so you just wind up hating him by the end. The thing, the thing that enraged me the most about it is that Mrs. Smith, it's not like, oh, she's so sick, she can't do it. Or, you know, she doesn't, she's not sure who to write to, or she doesn't know how to frame the letter. She is, she is not permitted by law or by culture to do this thing. Right. And she can't hire anyone to do it for her because she's too poor. It's not like, oh, I just don't know how to do it. You know, I'd really like you to help me out. Like, she's not allowed to take the actions she needs to to make this happen because she's a woman. And so she's so desperate that she happens to think because she knows a lot about the outside world that she happens to think that Anne will marry right. Mr. Elliot. She's heard well, that her, her nurse is a big gossip and tells her everything. <laughs> and so she kind of sees, I mean, when, when they have that meeting where she finally does spill her guts, she thinks that Anne and Mr. Elliot are engaged. Yes. Right. And then, cause, and, and then she's like, hey, you know, could you do a favor for me and talk to him? And, you know, maybe he could write this. You know, she doesn't get to this part. But basically she's saying, like, now that you have influence over him and you like me, could you ask him on my behalf to help me out? And what Maggie's talking about, what's so messed up about it, is that Anne says, no, no, I'm not going to marry him. And Mrs. Smith's like, oh, I know you are. You don't have to be coy. And Anne is like, no, I am really not going to marry him. And Mrs. Smith then says, even though she knows all about who Mr. Elliot really is, Mrs. Smith then says, let me plead for my, my former friend. Where can you look for a more suitable match? Where would you expect a more gentlemanlike, agreeable man? 
Let me recommend Mr. Elliot. I am sure you hear nothing but good of him from Colonel Wallace. And who can know him better than Colonel Wallace? Which is shocking once you realize who he is. And it's hard for a modern reader to understand where she could possibly be coming from. Um, her, her, her excuse is kind of sounds like weak sauce to us, but is also once you delve into Austin, you kind of get it where she's like, I thought it was a done deal. I was sure you're going to, we're going to accept him. It would be crappy of a friend to like ruin that for you. And it does make her seem like she's kind of way too self-serving and like now she's trying to hook up Anne and Mr. Elliot for her own reason so that she'll have an in with him. I don't really think that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she is self-serving. And we talk about in this book how there isn't a kind of female friendship that we've seen in Mm -hmm. other Austin books. And I think Mrs. Smith, it's- But she's also so far below Anne in terms of social status, wealth, and the power structure between them. It's I don't think it's even such that she could- She could- openly say until a couple minutes later in their conversation, like he's horrible. Don't marry him. Like, don't do it. I think that it's not like lady Russell counseling Anne or trying to persuade her away from marrying someone. She doesn't have that right. Yes, it is the kind of persuasion. Oh my God, you're absolutely right. Um, and, and let me, but Mrs. Smith, I, oh, I don't want to be hard on her as a character because Austin actually cares a lot and loves this character and gives. Oh, yeah, that's character- what I'm saying. I'm saying like, not so selfish and self-serving. It's just be. It's not her place. Yes, to right away tell Anne how awful he like that would be. I think that would be seen as a like a huge breach of social etiquette for someone. Well, in I her completely. Position. Yes, I completely actually agree with you that yes, it would be a breach, and for her friend to ha- be so high above her, being planning this prosperous marriage, She's and for her so to come. High. <laughs> we always have to break for 90s uh, pop hits, the top 40 radio. So yeah, top 40 from also, that was really off key. My apologies. Uh, top 40 circa 2001, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. At least 1998. It's the 90s, baby. Oh, yeah. Right. I okay, anything. so I want to read <laughs> um, Mrs. Smith because I think this is so interesting. And I wonder a lot about Austin, how. I mean, we've all observed this, right? So Mrs. Smith has what Austin calls the choicest gift of heaven, right? So Anne um, goes to see her and Anne thinks, uh, you know, she could scarcely imagine a more cheerless situation in itself than Mrs. Mm -hmm. Smith. She had been very fond of her husband. She had buried him. She had been used to affluence. It was gone. She had no child to connect her with life and happiness again, no relations to assist in the arrangement of perplexed affairs. No health to make all the rest supportable. His, her accommodations were limited to a noisy parlor and a dark bedroom behind, with no possibility of moving from one to the other without assistance, which there was only one servant in the house to afford. And she never quitted the house but, but to be conveyed into the warm bath. Yet, in spite of all of this, Austin or Anne had reason to believe that she had moments only of languor and depression, to hours of occupation and enjoyment, How could it be? She watched, observed, reflected, and finally determined that this was not a case of fortitude or of resignation only. A submissive spirit might be patient. A strong understanding would supply resolution. But here was something more. Here was that elasticity of mind, that disposition to be comforted, that power of turning readily from evil to good and of finding employment, 
which carried her out of herself, which was from nature alone. It was the choicest gift of heaven. And Anne viewed her friend as one of those instances in which by merciful appointment, it seemed designed to counterbalance almost every other want. This passage is so interesting to me. I have a lot of things to say about it. First of all, okay, can I, I really... say something first? Can I say something first? Okay, sure. I just want to say, oh, thank you. That because we see that passage first about Mrs. Smith before we get to the, oh, well, if you're not going to marry Mr. Elliot, then let me tell you actually how really awful he is. That's why I like her because I know she's actually just a really good person because who among us would be able to endure all of that and remain happy? Yeah, right. It's rare and it's a valuable gift. And I, I really appreciate that Austin has, um, and I agree, by the way, with your point, and I agree that we really like her, which almost makes it a little bit more shocking that she would sort of encourage Anne to get married to Mr. Elliot because mm-hmm. you think of her as like an utterly contented person because of this passage, but she really does, you know, have some needs that she's still. But anyway, I, I really appreciate that Austin is not setting up Mrs. Smith as a model to be like, yes, we should all be exactly be like this person because that's unrealistic. Austin calls it the choicest gift of heaven, and it really is. And we know these people, and we always think, how do you do it? How can you possibly get up in the morning, you know? And and, um, Mm -hmm. Kevin, my my husband Kevin, is one of these people. Oh, my God, he so is. He so is. It astonishes me every day. And I, I value him for it incredibly, but I, I have in the early days of our marriage, you know, struggling with my own problems, like asked him, like, how, how do you do it? How do you do it? And he's like, I don't know. I'm always pretty even killed. I've always been pretty even killed. It's just his nature. I still value him for it. I still think it's a valuable quality. You know, it's not like he had to work for it, but it is his nature. And, and I really appreciate that Austin recognizes that some people are just like this, but sometimes it also drives me crazy digression when I, I have to tell you this story, he is so even keeled and so optimistic that um, uh, um, during, you know, the night of the election of a, a certain American politician that will remain nameless, I couldn't watch the TV. The election results were rolling in. I was like, I can't watch. I went to. That was me too, Kristen. That was me too. And I, but I it was home. before I even knew what the, I, I really thought, you know, my candidate was going to finish first, but I was like, whatever, I, I'm going to go take a bath. And I went and take a, took a bath long bath. Then I finally, at the end, I was like, I checked Facebook. I was like, okay. And I, I, I knew, and I don't think I've ever felt worse. And I, I, I mean, within, you know, I, that's a little bit of hyperbole, but I, I watched, it was almost like I could barely walk. It was almost like it was an old lady. I could barely move my legs. And I like hobbled into the, um, you know, the, the main room looking for, looking to him to comfort me. And I walk in looking like I've just, you know, somebody's just died. And he goes, believe this or not, Maggie. He goes, oh, what's wrong? I almost lost my shit. I was like, what are you talking about? What's Listen, wrong? No, nothing against Kevin, who you know I adore. <laughs> and if it wasn't for Bay and if it wasn't for the fact that you live in freaking Idaho, I would be like, sister wife? <laughs> um as a straight white man, the stakes aren't exactly as high for Kevin. Well, that's true. As but I really don't for many other people. No, but he is genuinely concerned. But you're right; it doesn't hit yeah. to the core of him. You're right; it doesn't hit to hit him in the emotional right. funny bone. Um, but, but he was. Your he, point he was, is well taken. That he is very just like we'll be. We'll you know what we'll weather what comes. 
It's he's not Jewish, he by the way. Because this is it's not how Jewish people respond. <laughs> no. I, if You know what, though? If I'm picking my team for the zombie apocalypse, like Kevin would be on it. Oh, yeah. Because he's well, the type of person you want in a crisis. Yes. Yes. He's the Ann Elliott in a crisis. He, he's like, we got to keep our heads. We got to keep cool. Ooh, nice callback to the thing we're actually supposed to be talking about. <laughs> Um, so we, we, we talked about this choice gift of heaven and so have some people have it. And I really appreciate how Austin is not being hard on me reaching through the centuries and being hard on me. Uh, like she sometimes is through Mansfield park, which I appreciate. She's my moral, That's my external plot. moral conscience. The shadow plot is aimed at Kristen. <laughs> yeah. In she future. was thinking about me when she wrote this many years ago, but she's not reaching through uh, the centuries to be hard on me. Like she sometimes is through pride through, through Mansfield park. Excuse me. Um, she understands the world so well that she understands that some people will never have it. Some people will never have it. Some people will have my struggles. <laughs> And uh, that's nothing they can do about that. And I wonder, this is also one a, a point I want to make. I wonder, did Austin, who did Austin observe that was like this? Um, I don't think it was Austin herself. I think, I think Austin was an Anne Elliot. And I think Austin encountered people, whether that was her sister, Cassandra, or whoever, who were like this. And had yeah. spent time trying to understand how do they do it? If you want to do one of those things that they say you shouldn't do, right, where you read into uh, authors' works to glean ideas as to their own personality and views, I would say that Austin was like an Anne Elliot merged with the Lizzie Bennett's wit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I completely agree. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. Anne Elliot has a rich inner mind, but doesn't express a lot of it outwardly. And I feel like Jane Austen is closer to maybe more her narrator's expression and that she wouldn't really, I feel like she probably spoke her mind more than she could, should have. More than, more than Anne, but Anne was the soul of her. Anne was the emotional soul of Austen. Right. I completely yes. agree. Yes. Because of the concert, because of the way Anne's reactions and emotions are described in volume two, I know Austen had to have lived this. You know, yes. and it's interesting mm-hmm. because Austin never married, and we really only know about Tom Lefroy, which was a, a t- short time in her younger, you know, very young days. Austin must have had other romances. Austin must have gone out in the world and have been thinking about a man and seeing him across the room, and even, mm-hmm. you know, forming these warm emotional attachments that they knew they could never, you know, get married or whatever. Um, I know that must be true because she she describes this as sensations. I mean, she's having- a pers- she was a person. She was a she wasn't just like a writing machine. She didn't right. just stay locked in her house and constantly right. turn out novels. I mean, she lived a real life. She lived a real life, and she had a lot of emo- you know a lot of social interaction with all the men around. She had her a high and- emotional vocabulary. Well, she she did, but she also had this. Uh, what I think is so interesting is she had the real life. Uh, romances. I know she did because otherwise she couldn't have written this. Right. And it's oh, so oh, Kristen, you just made me think of something I wanted to talk about. That's so good. Oh. Um, so getting back to what we were saying, the the scene with Mrs. Smith and the letter. I love, 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 and reactions to the letter because the letter. I'm sure you have the uh, the section bookmarked. I don't have my book in front of me, but she has these all these conflicting thoughts where it's like. 
on one hand, this is embarrassing and disrespectful to my family and makes me feel awful and what a jerk. On the other hand, it is itself a breach of honor for me to read someone's private correspondence. And on the third hand, which, you know, as you do, someone by what is written in their private correspondence. And to me, we've talked a lot about why Cassandra would burn Jane Austen's letters. And I think kind of one of the main um, theories is that she didn't want people to judge her sister by things she might have written in private. Oh my God. And this so- passage to me responds so, so well to that. And I love Anne for having the wherewithal to not just read this letter and be like, what a jerk. But she also takes the time to think, you know, this is not meant for me. This was said in private. I, you know, it, I don't know if it's right to judge him by this, but with all of this other evidence, I do think that he's a jerk. Okay. So hold on a second because I do have it. And um, I'm so glad you brought it up because this is one of the things that I definitely wanted to talk about. And for me, for me, okay, um, well, I talked earlier about the fat shaming passage where she right. justifies the fact that she's making fun of a, a heavier woman, mm-hmm. right? To me, when we're talking about the morality and the high standards Austin holds to herself, this to me is another justification. Sorry, I don't disagree. Anne could not immediately get over the shock and mortification of finding such words applied to her father. She was obliged to recollect that her seeing the letter was a violation of the laws of honor, that no one ought to be judged or to be known by such testimonies, that no private correspondence could bear the eye of others before she could recover and calmness enough to return the letter which she'd been meditating over. Okay, we know for a fact, for sure, Austin was so witty and had so much biting wit she must have written to her sister Cassandra and others and said mean stuff. Oh, I'm sure. And don't you wish you and could? We, we have some uh, examples of that. Was I said, that? don't you wish you could read those letters? <laughs> we have a few examples of it where she makes some offhand comments, like, you know, this woman died. Maybe she's turned around and saw her husband. You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jane. But yeah, if you just were reading it, you'd be like, wow, what a bitch. But no, yeah. it's funny. Yeah, but, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't want people to judge me by some of the things that I say when I think I'm in private. Like, I, we can all be grossly inappropriate when we think that no one else is really listening. Yes, in our minds and also in our communications with our good friends. And nowadays, I mean, they say never put anything writing and you wouldn't want it on the New York front page of the New York Times. Right. Then they only had letters. Nowadays, we could we can decide to only say things out loud if we want, or we, we, we know that our emails are private. This also ties into to the, um, the, the fact that Fanny didn't take Mary Crawford's letter, the Mary Crawford's letter that says, I want Edmund to be the rich guy before I marry him, that I want Edmund to inherit before I marry him. Mm-hmm. Why she didn't take that letter and just forward it right on to Edmund himself? Right. Is because it would be a violation of the laws of honor. Right. And I and, think that this is um, another example of how, and I'm glad that we get to see it because a lot of the time, Austin, you know, she'd assume that the reader would know these things. Um, yeah. And so I'm glad that it is explicitly written for Anne's thought processes. Maybe we should just move on to the end. Well, let's go we back gotta, to the concert. We got to spend a lot of time talking about the whole Captain Harville and debate. Yes. Before we move on to the end, we have to talk about the concert evening. Then yes, yes. I'm sorry. That was the main thing you wanted to talk about. So, And that's okay. And um, this is what makes me say – how how Austin must have gone through all of this because we're talking about real sensations. And this is the night where 
Wentworth, having realized finally that he doesn't love Louisa, that he loves Anne, he's come to Bath. Um, he has uh, seen that Mr. Elliot is sort of, uh, to a certain extent, a suitor of Anne. And then he goes to this concert. They And Anne, you know, it's interesting, you know, for a while she's stuck in these private parties and she can't get out into society where she knows Wentworth is. And she thinks to herself, oh, I'm stronger. But it, she's feeling stronger because her strength has not been tried. Meaning I she's still- am stronger than yesterday. Uh, yeah, but she, she thinks she's stronger because her strength is not tried. So she goes to this uh, concert. And she sees him walk in, and they're in the octagon room, which, by the way, if you've ever been to Bath, and if you've never been to Bath, I I recommend it because it's the Georgian city of Bath. It was conceived and built entirely out of limestone and has never been knocked down. So it is so close to what Austin actually mm-hmm. lived in, and that is so powerful to be there and to it's know you're seeing to film Austin films <laughs> there because it looks the same. To be there and to know you're seeing what she's seeing. I mean, the first time I went there and I, I stood in front of one of the homes that she had actually lived in, because they moved around a lot as they got poorer and poorer. When I stood in front of one of the homes, I was just overcome and I started crying. I, I had never felt such a close physical connection to a historical figure. And the uh, the rooms, I think they're the lower rooms. Um, you can go there. They're still standing. They were damaged in World War II, but they're, they're, they're fine for the most part. You can go there and see the actual rooms that she is referring to in this um, book. It's very cool. When you went on our trip and I thought it was just, it's so neat. They have the original chandelier she Mm -hmm. would have seen with her own eyes. Mm -hmm. Anyway, and and you can go in there and they talk about being in the octagon room, which is one of the first rooms you walk into, which is sort of like a receiving room. And that's where they are, where, where Anne and her family uh, where they are, where they're waiting for their co- wealthy cousins, the Dalrymples, to come in. And that's when Frederick Wentworth walks in and she sees him. And they're in the octagon room and they're in this Regency uh, tableau, you know. And and reading that and knowing and having been there, it just makes it so much more real to me. Um <laughs> I was trying to tell someone about Bath once, by the way, and I, I mentioned, oh, the rooms were damaged by the Germans in World War II. And Kevin goes, that was the worst thing the Germans ever did. And, <laughs> and I was pissed off. I was like, shut up. I'm trying to talk about something important. <laughs> so, Kevin. Looking did we back, mention how droll Kevin is? <laughs> looking back, I see how it was funny with the time. I was so passionate about Bath that I was pissed off. And I was like, <laughs> Talking about something important. How dare they? How dare Shut they? Um, but, but, but anyway, yeah. So that's what happens. So she's standing there. He walks in and she has the courage to step forward and speak to him. And he talks about Louisa and the fact that she has gotten engaged to Captain Bennock. And well, he just, says something. I mean, supposed to be a big shocking twist, I think. Like I, I thought it was because he's the guy who was so depressed because his fiance had died, and they talked about sad poetry all the time. And then Louisa, you know, had been this like free spirit, and then all of a sudden they're engaged. Yeah, and and he, and everybody talks about how awful it is because um, Bennick used to be in love with a woman named Fanny Harville, the sister of Captain Harville. Fanny Harville, who was a, a, apparently incredibly well-read, brilliant, wonderful, beautiful woman, 
And for Benick to fall in love with Louisa Musgrove, I mean, there's nothing wrong with her, but he did it so fast after. Well, except that her, like half of her brain leaked out. Well, yeah. All of her lime. He did it so fast. I'm just kidding. Oh, you. Um, (laughs) Wentworth. Uh, being in love with Anne and his line of thinking, he brings it up to her and he says, you know, Louisa Musgrove is a fine girl, but Benick is something better. He's a reading man, a clever man, a thinking man. And um, he was sincerely attached to Fanny Harville, who is a very superior person. And Wentworth says, a man does not recover from such an attachment. He ought not. He does not. And Anne, rightly so, takes this all to their situation, takes this all to her heart and all for herself, saying, he's, you know, he's saying that he he has not recovered from his love of me. That's how she takes it. And the passage is so, um, so amazing. Uh, It says um, she's insensible of the ceaseless buzz of the room and the almost ceaseless slamming of the door. Yet she caught every word and she thought nothing of the brilliancy of the room. Um, You know, she couldn't pay attention to anything. She just was focused in on his words and it was almost like a camera was just zooming in on him and everything he was saying. And it's so real. Um, So that's, that's the moment where, uh, she takes that into herself and realizes that he he does still love her or is strongly suspicious that he does still love her. And, and Maggie thinking, um, <laughs> no, this is one of, no, I agree. This is one of those moments. No, just because I mentioned this to Kristen earlier that I am terrible at reading into people when it comes to whether they are interested in me romantically or not. I am the worst, like the worst. I once had a friend tell me that if someone was going to propose to me, they'd have to use a PowerPoint presentation or I wouldn't <laughs> get it. Um, so I would probably not pick up on this, but I think this is an instance where you can look at what he's saying and say, okay, the subtext is quickly becoming text. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not that far away from him being like, yeah, some of us never stop loving. Wink. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's as clear as you could get in Regency times for him to be like, and I still love you. <laughs> Without actually declaring it. She, yes. And, you know, and she's so sensitive and he, she knows he's so sensitive and she reads everything into it. And she reads tenderness for the past into it. And uh, she could not contemplate the changes implying less. He must still love her. Which is and an she now knows that he's not going to be marrying Louisa. Because that was kind of a, a roadblock that she thought still existed. She thought that he yes. was going to become engaged to Louisa. When she finds that out, it says she she has had feelings that she was afraid to examine. They were too much like joy, senseless joy, knowing that he was, <laughs> you know, un, unattached once more. It, even though knowing she didn't have any, you know, proof of her a return of her affection. But, it, you know, just to know that he was unattached. But anyway, she's um, Chris, the whole co- you have. Do you have a passage marked when Mr. Elliot is talking to her and is basically like, I'm going to propose to you soon. And she's horrified. I have the passage at the concert where he's talking about the Italian love song. Oh God. And it's just like so awkward. I thought it was so awkward. This passage. I'm going to read it because, because I love the detail of them talking about this Italian love song. Um, So he needs her to translate the Italian, right? That's right. Her okay. to translate love. Um, and, uh, you know, so she spends the concert evening just 
feeling his presence in the room. I mean, she was so attuned to him and so sensitive and she knows he's there and she's looking for him the whole time. She's, she's trying to figure out where she, he is, but her, she's an amazing spirit because she believes now that he loves her. And this is incredible, incredible discovery. So it says, Anne's mind was in a most favorable state for the entertainment of the evening. It was just occupation enough. She had feelings for the tender spirits for the gay, attention for the scientific, and patience for the wearisome, and had never liked a concert better, at least during the first act. Toward the close of it, in the interval succeeding an Italian song, she explained the words of the song to Mr. Elliot. They had a concert bill between them. This, said she, is nearly the sense, or rather the meaning of the words, for certainly the sense of an Italian love song much, must not be talked of. But it is nearly the meaning as I can give, for I do not pretend to understand the language. I am a very poor Italian scholar. Yes, yes, I see you are. I see you know nothing of the matter. You have only knowledge enough of the language to translate at sight these inverted, transposed, curtailed Italian lines into clear, comprehensible, elegant English. You need not okay, say that part, anything. That part was pretty funny. Yeah. His sarcasm there, I like. Sorry, keep, keep reading, keep reading. My apologies. And she's like, I will not oppose such kind politeness, but I should be sorry to be examined by a real proficient. And then he said, Mr. Elliot says, I have not had the pleasure of visiting in Camden Place so long, replied he, without knowing something of Miss Anne Elliot. And I do regard her as one who is too modest for the world in general to be aware of half her accomplishments and too highly accomplished for modesty to be natural in any other woman which is like relaying it all thick. Yeah. And goes for shame, for shame. This is too much of flattery. I forget what we, what we are have. We are, we are to have next turning to the bill. So she's like, Oh, and she's like trying to change, turn the conversation away. And, and Elliot go, Mr. Elliot goes, perhaps said Mr. Elliot speaking low. I have had a longer acquaintance with your character than you are aware of. And he goes on to say that he had heard of her before and how wonderful she was and had long uh, thought of the name of Elliot and hoped that the name would never change. Yes. Oh my God. That part. It's oh, so cheesy. Yeah. So he's essentially saying, I hope that you'll marry me. Yeah. And she's like, oh, she's like, the, the attention is so poorly timed. She's like, oh, I want to get away from this. I want, I don't want to deal with you. And um, then Wentworth, uh, who is observing this conversation from afar, gets jealous. And he comes over. Uh, he finally comes over and um, says, you know, oh, I must wish you good night. I am going. I, I, I should get home as fast as I can. And Anne realizes that he might be jealous of Mr. Elliot. So she tries to be encouraging. And she says, oh, it's not this song worth staying for. Um, and he, he says, no, he replied <laughs> impressively, there is nothing worth my staying for. And he was gone directly. And he's jealous, jealousy of Mr. Elliot, but Elliot was the mo only intelligible motive. Um, and so the thing is my question to you, Maggie, um, this is such childish behavior. I, I, I don't hesitate to use the word. There is nothing worth my staying for that. I want to ask you, Maggie. Is Mr. Went or is Captain Wentworth's jealousy over the top, um, obvious jealousy? Is that male privilege? 
because she would never, ever be allowed yeah. to express that kind of um, emotion. But oh, we're for sure. Ex- oh, for sure. I mean, yeah, we just talked about how they're con- she's constrained in her ability to tell people to just like, just leave me alone. And I mean, absolutely. She can't be derived. She can't be that kind of derision to someone that he is able to show. I think that you're when you're reading it like that, it, when I was reading it, I didn't see it as an over-the-top display no. in my head. No. <laughs> I was I was being unfair. I'm trying to remember if she and Captain Harville referenced that in their discussion about men and women loving differently. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's no question that men are granted more leave when it comes to expression and expressing themselves. Absolutely. Well, and the pen is theirs and the um, tolerance of their deep emotions, their passionate emotions, they're allowed to express that with the pen and in other ways. Right. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, it's acknowledged, oh, male jealousy, you know, and it was sort of like. But didn't he think at this point that she and Mr. Elliot would very soon become engaged? Yes. It's kind of like this whole and I don't want to say sitcom to. um make it sound like a diss against the plot where you have that typical sitcom where two people just have these misunderstandings that could right. easily be resolved. They talk to each other. You know what I mean? Right. Where like, right. she thinks he was going to be engaged to Louisa and he thinks that she's, it's very Shakespearean. How about that? Yeah. It's a Shakespearean yeah. comedy of errors. She thinks that he's going to be engaged to Louisa and he thinks that she's going to be engaged to Mr. Elliot and they're both wrong. And so they both respond to each other this way. Um, although she at this point does know that he's not. But I feel like he is very jealous because he thinks it's a done deal. Yes, I, I think that's fair. And he probably did say, no, there is nothing worth my staying for. And like, you know, just. Which uh, to me is seen more as a sad comment yeah. rather than a snotty yeah. one. Like, no, there's there's nothing for me here. Like, yeah, oh, Captain Wentworth. He's still being overdramatic. He doesn't know that for sure. There's a mm. seat right next to her on the bench. There's nothing stopping him from sitting down and, and trying to talk to her. I mean, if you think that there's still, you know, that the field is still open, why not play the field? Why don't, you know, why I not think, Why not try? I think that try you and I just her. have a fundamental different view of Captain Wentworth. I think to you, he's more, I don't know if pompous is the right word, but where he just kind of like has this ability to just be a snot. Whereas to yeah. me, I see him as more of a tragic character. Yeah. Yeah, he is. He is tragic. He he is a, a victim of his own, uh, let's say, male privilege because he has this pride, this hurt pride that she rejected yeah. him, this hurt pride that she could possibly. That is true. That is very true. That is very true. Like, I was a catch. You missed out. Hey, girl, look at me. I'm hot shit. Yeah. Um, and but she's Anne- not allowed to respond. She can't respond that way. So Anne's, Anne's happiness is close at hand if you let's want talk to about the big now. let's talk about the big conversation between captain harville, harville. and Anne. yes do you want to read it do you, i mean do you have it i can read it i have it okay uh one quick conscious look at her is that it yes okay well they um and i sort of skipped this part but if you wanted to talk about it we can where before the whole conversation with harville and um Anne occurs Uh, Mrs. Musgrove, who's in town, is talking to Mrs. Croft, the admiral's wife, and they're talking about long engagements and how they both would never want a long engagement for young people. And Wentworth is in the room and he's listening to this and he's like, oh, no one would have wanted this for Anne. I was in the wrong. No one would have yeah. watched this for Anne. And he, he sort thought, of I think her- he thought it was just like one or like maybe one or two people swayed her. 
Yeah. But basically everyone around her would have been against it. This is a bad idea. It's just a bad idea. And, th- and there people he respects and likes are both saying this. And he, he sort of gives Anne this look, this conscious look like, oh, I was hard on you and I probably shouldn't have been. And then, um, you know, Captain Harville kind of looks at her. He's over by the window and he kind of looks at her like, come to me. I have something to say to you. Come to and, me. Um, so there should be a part where uh, <laughs> he starts to speak and he says, look here said he unfolding a parcel in his hand and displaying a small miniature painting. Oh, okay. So am I going to be Captain Harville in this? No, I'll be Captain Harville. Okay. You want to be Anne, right? I don't care. Okay. I'll be, I'll be Captain Harville. Um, Okay. You go ahead and start. We'll figure it out. Poor Fanny. She would not have forgotten him so soon. No, replied Anne in a low feeling voice that I can easily believe. It was not in her nature. She doted on him. It would not be the nature of any woman who truly loved. Captain Harville smiled, as much to say, Do you claim that for your sex? And she answered the question, smiling also. Yes, we certainly do not forget you as soon as you forget us. It is, perhaps, our fate rather than our merit. We cannot help ourselves. We live at home, quiet, confined, and our feelings prey upon us. You are forced on exertion. You have always a profession, pursuits, business of some sort or other to take you back into the world immediately, and continual occupation and change soon weaken impressions. Granting your assertion that the world does all this so soon for men, which, however, I do not think I shall grant, it does not apply to Benwick. He has not been forced upon any exertion. The peace turned on him on shore at the very moment, and he has been living with us in our little family circle ever since. True, said Anne, very true, I did not recollect. But what shall we say now, Captain Harville? If the change be not from outward circumstances, it must be from within. It must be nature, man's nature, which has done the business for Captain Benwick. No, no, it is not man's nature. I will not allow it to be more man's nature than woman's to be inconstant and forget those they do love or have loved. I believe the reverse. I believe in a true analogy between our bodily frames and our mental, and that as our bodies are the strongest, so are our feelings, capable of bearing most rough usage and riding out the heaviest weather. Your feelings may be the strongest, replied Anne, but the same spirit of analogy will authorize me to assert that ours are the most tender. Man is more robust than woman, but he is not longer lived, which exactly explains my view of the nature of their attachments. Nay, it would be too hard upon you if it were otherwise. You have difficulties and privations and dangers enough to struggle with. You are always laboring and toiling, exposed to every risk and hardship. Your home, country, friends, all quitted. Neither time nor health nor life to be called your own. It would be hard indeed, with a faltering voice, if woman's feelings were to be added to all of this. We shall never agree upon this question, Captain Harville was beginning to say, when a slight noise called their attention to Captain Wentworth's hitherto perfectly quiet division of the room. It was nothing more than his pen had fallen down, but Anne was startled at finding him nearer than she had supposed, and half inclined to suspect that the pen had only fallen because he had been occupied by them, striving to catch sounds which yet she did not think he could have caught. Have you finished your letter? said Captain Harville. Not quite. A few lines more. I shall have done in five minutes. There is no hurry on my side. I am only ready ready whenever you are. I am in very good anchorage here, 
smiling at Anne. Well supplied and want for nothing. No hurry for a signal at all. Well, Miss Elliot, lowering his voice, as I was saying, we shall never agree, I suppose, upon this point. No man and woman would, probably. But let me observe that all histories are against you, all stories, prose, and verse. If I had such a memory as Benwick, I could bring you fifty quotations in a moment on my side of the argument, and I do not think I ever opened a book in my life which had not something to say upon woman's inconstancy. Songs and proverbs all talk of woman's fickleness. But perhaps you will say these were all written by men. Perhaps I shall. Yes, yes, if you please, no reference to examples in books. Men have had every advantage of us in telling their own story. Education has been theirs in so much higher a degree. The pen has been in their hands. I will not allow books to prove anything. But how shall we prove anything? We never shall. We never can expect to prove anything upon such a point. It is a difference of opinion which does not admit of proof. We each begin, probably, with a little bias towards our own sex, and upon that bias build every circumstance in favor of it, which has occurred within our own circle, many of which circumstances, perhaps those very cases which strike us the most, may be precisely such as cannot be brought forward without betraying a confidence, or in some respect, saying what should not be said. Ah, cried Captain Harville in a, strong, in a tone of strong feeling. If I could but make you comprehend what a man suffers when he takes a last look at his wife and children and watches the boat that he has sent them off in as long as it is in sight and then turns away and says, God knows whether we will ever meet again. And then if I could convey to you the glow of his soul when he does see them again, when coming back after a 12 months absence, perhaps, and obliged to put into another port, he calculates how soon it would be possible to get them there, pretending to deceive himself and saying, they cannot be here till such a day, but all the while hoping for them 12 hours sooner and seeing them arrive at last as if heaven had given them wings by many hours sooner still. If I could explain to you all this and all that a man can bear and do and glories to do for the sake of these treasures of his existence, I speak, you know, only of such men as have hearts pressing his own with emotion. Oh, cried Anne eagerly, I hope I do justice to all that is felt by you and by those who resemble you. God forbid that I should undervalue the warm and faithful feelings of any of my fellow creatures. I should deserve utter contempt if I dared to suppose that true attachment and constancy were known only by woman. No, I believe you capable of everything great and good in your married lives— I believe you equal to every important exertion and to every domestic forbearance so long as, if I may be allowed the expression, so long as you have an object. I mean, while the woman you love lives and lives for you. All the privilege I claim for my own sex, it is not a very enviable one, you need not covet it, is that of loving longest, of existence or hope when hope is gone. She could not immediately have uttered another sentence. Her heart was too full, her breath too much oppressed. You are a good soul, cried Captain Harville, putting his hand on her arm quite affectionately. There is no quarreling with you, and when I think of Benwick, my tongue is tied. Okay, so there's a lot to discuss with that. Masterful. First, let's just say yeah. masterful. Amazing. The lyricism... Yeah. Go ahead. When I first read this, I went back and read it again like three more times because this is kind of one of those big – this is one of those moments when you're reading a book where 
your it's like there are big flashing neon signs like this is big stuff it's all coming together go this goes outside even the story like these characters are discussing something fundamental to life that is not just contained within the story i feel like austin is giving us a philosophy Absolutely. And she's also putting forward her own frustration with the fact that she didn't have a voice or doesn't have a voice uh, mm-hmm. compared or women don't have a voice compared to, to men. And just the, the mm-hmm. incredible, the lyricism of it, the succinctness of the ideas that are being expressed, mm-hmm. um, just the affection between the characters that you can, you can feel so, so intensely. It's, it's masterful. Yeah. And she's funny. I mean, I think that she's funny here, um, especially when she talks about, um, I will not allow books to prove anything. You know, we kind of say like, well, if it's written in a book, then, it, you know, like that's what the, res- the resource you go to. Right. Um, and they're having they're having a friendly kind of sparring of wit and philosophy here. And I, I think it's so fun. It's such an, it's such a great passage. It is. It's a beautiful passage. And coming right before the letter, it puts us in a very, I don't know, emotional. My my heart is certainly laid open by this. And we haven't heard her open up like that before. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's almost finally coming out. And the fact that Wentworth is listening is also really satisfying to me. Yeah. She's, you know, she's having her say. Because yeah. he must have wondered this whole time, too, whether she still felt for him. I mean, we're so, we're in Anne's head, except for the very few times we talked about, um, like in part one, where we jumped to Captain Wentworth's POV. But for the most, almost exclusively in this book, we are in Anne's head. So the reader, we know what she thinks, but Captain Wentworth has no idea. And like we said, she's not allowed to express how she feels. So this is basically, and I think he says this in this letter, which I really hope you'll let me read because I love it. Um, like now that he now knows for sure that she still loves him because she is arguing that women love the longest, even when there is no hope. Yep. Absolutely. So do you want to get to the letter? Yes. Okay. So let me just say, I gasped out loud when I read this letter. It's so beautiful. It's just so unapologetically romantic, I think. And there's, and like we said, nothing wrong with that. I mean, I'm here for it. Okay, so he's writing a letter. We think it's correspondence to does, does he think it's to Captain Bennick? Is that who Harville thinks he's writing to? No, he's writing to some shop owner who's going to set the picture of Bennick in a frame. Oh, right. Oh, that's not that interesting. Okay, so he's writing this letter, and but then we find out he comes back on the pretense of having left a glove, I think, and presses yeah. this letter into Anne's hand, and it turns out that he was writing to her. And she opens it up, and this is what it says. I can listen no longer in silence. I must speak to you by such means as are within my reach. You pierce my soul. I am half agony, half hope. Tell me not that I am too late, that such precious feelings are gone forever. I offer myself to you again with a heart even more your own than when you almost broke it eight years and a half ago. Dare not say that man forgets sooner than woman that his love has an earlier death. I have loved none but you. Unjust I may have been, weak and resentful I have been, but never inconstant. You alone have brought me to Bath, for you alone I think and plan. Have you not seen this? Can you fail to have understood my wishes? I had not waited even these ten days could I have read your feelings as I think you must have penetrated mine. I can hardly write. 
I am every instant hearing something which overpowers me. You sink your voice, but I can distinguish the tones of that voice when they would be lost on others. Too good, too excellent creature, you do us justice indeed. You do believe that there is true attachment and constancy among men. Believe it to be most fervent, most undeviating in F.W. I must go uncertain of my fate, but I shall return hither or follow your party as soon as possible. A word, a look will be enough to decide whether I enter your father's house this evening. I, I mean, I just can't think of anything. Even, you know, you must allow me to tell you how ardently I love and admire you. No, has, has Austin ever written anything as romantic as you pierce my soul? I am half agony, half hope. You must it's allow me to tell you so how beautiful. ardently I admire and love you. I suppose that's the only other it's thing. Not, I can think yeah. of. But it's this not. Yeah. But to say someone pierces your soul. Honest, honestly, your your reading of it almost brought me to tears. Like I'm so Aww, thanks, I'm so moved by it, which makes it hard because That's what so I sweet. intended to say about this letter, <laughs> I, I was gonna I was gonna say I was talking about my frustration with it, you know, sort of. And um, Deborah Yaffe, who wrote Among the Jainites, actually has this conversation with this this scholar, this professor, who calls it trite. He's like, oh, it's the really? trite letter in classic. Oh, letter. I so disagree. And, and Maybe Deborah I have read a lot like, of classic romances or, you know, gothic novels or I'm not even a, a huge, you know, Bronte, any of the Brontes. I, yeah. So to me, it doesn't read as trite. It reads as someone actually for the first time being able to just pour out what they read. Really how often do people say, really say how they feel in classic literature? After that reading, I, I'm on board with you. I mean, Aww, that's so sweet, Kristen. No, it was amazing. It was amazing. And you're right. He was pouring out his, his heart and soul. And, um, maybe I just never had it. Maybe no one ever just like read it for me, you know, like the way it was Mm -hmm. meant to be communicated. Because honestly, if I got a letter where some guy was like, you pierced my soul, I would be like, come on, but that's, this is now not then. And this is very, very sensitive people. These are very sensitive people yeah. with, with, you know, a lot to express and a lot of agony going on. And and I, I get it. But it's I, also, um, if it, okay, let me just say that if it was just some, like, like you were in college and your boyfriend wrote you a letter like this, it would seem ridiculous. But I mean, these are, we're talking, and this is kind of, you have to think of it in the context of part one, right? Think of how much heartache and pain and regret there's been. And from on both of their sides, for both of them, they both had their hearts. It's been eight years. And then to just finally get the chance to just say, I love you now as I always have. And the part that I really, um, kind of what we we're talking about, about how they just can't communicate, the part where he says, for you alone, I think and plan. Have you not seen this? Can you fail to have understood my wishes? I had not waited even these 10 days. Could I have read your feelings as I think you must have penetrated mine? I mean, they can't talk to each other. So it, there's a whole, the whole book is like, does he still love her? Does she, does he know that she, that she still loves him? And he kind of even full out says like, you know, did you know? I didn't know. I just found out, you know, it's just, I don't know. I thought it was so romantic and beautiful when I was reading it. But well, I'm just really, a big cooper. I'm a big romantic at heart. So, you know, 
Well, no, you're not. I mean, you're not. I think you've more than proved your point. <laughs> Honestly, with me, like I, I'm, I'm, I'm on board. I mean, I'm on board now. I mean, like I'm so like totally agog at that. But and I feel bad because I was gonna, I was gonna talk about my frustration. Maybe I just, maybe I'm not. Maybe I shy away or shrink away from romance as being almost mm-hmm. too on the nose or too too much to process. Like too much it's like just overwhelming for me to process to have somebody be that honest like mm-hmm. i don't know um and uh you know like almost like Anne, the way she reacts it's like she's so agitated that she can't even listen to anything that anyone and they think she's sick everyone thinks that she's gonna drop like keel over any minute i know and she's so it's sick. so hard to to express yourself with that much sincerity and i think today in you know this time of you know the war you know history we're all a little bit afraid to be that sincere i mean no, yes sort of, yes that's exactly what i was thinking um it's sort of the cur- okay so we talk about courage you know, like on the battlefield and courage to stand up to bullies and things like that but think about how much courage it takes to admit to someone that you love them like that. Because I mean, I couldn't even ask someone out for like years and years and years because I was so afraid of rejection. And to just lay your heart to someone who had, from your perspective, broken it once before, to lay your heart out bare like that in that letter, I think is such an amazing act of bravery. Because he he did not know that she would say yes. He says, you know, give me a look. Let me know if you're on board or not. And like, I'll go away for forever. It's by no means 100% certain that she would accept him again. He doesn't know. And I think it says a lot. I mean, and again, hmm, I was going to say, I think it says a lot that he's the one to admit it first. But then again, she's not really allowed to admit it first. Right. It would would be inappropriate for her as a woman to, to admit. Yeah. It she first. can't write him a letter and be like, I still love you. Do you love me? Tell you, check yes or no. I mean, you just can't do that. You suffer in silence. He's the one with the power <laughs> to say, let's do this thing. Like, will you marry me? It's not like she could, what? <laughs> check yes no, or no. That's just really funny. Check yes or no. Like that's hysterical. This beautiful romantic <laughs> letter. And then the response is like, do you still like me? Check yes well, or no. Let me check yes or no. Um, yeah, the, in that book, in among the Jane, it's like I was talking about the professor. The professor was, was like, "It's the tritest letter in classic literature." And Deborah Yaffe was like, oh, "I love the letter." I know. I totally like, disagree. I completely disagree. He was like, "I know you do. I know you do. You got to get over that because yeah. it's the it's the battle for Austin, right? It's the battle for the heart, heart and soul of Austin. Is can we think it's romantic, or do we have to?" Think of it, you know, as an academics and, you know, the answer's got to be somewhere in between. But yeah, I mean, why can't the reader just think, I'm in, I mean, this is us, the whole thesis of our podcast is the people who think that it's just romance are wrong. Right. But I mean, why can't the reader enjoy the parts they enjoy? I mean, that's the thing about Austin. It's not one thing. You're right. You're right. And Maybe I like biting social commentary and satire yeah. and romance. And you know what? I got it all. So F- well, I shy away, I shrink away. It's almost too much. And that's why I like that she doesn't write a whole lot of over-the-top proposal scenes is I shrink away from this right. kind of honesty of feelings pouring out. And, and and I've been unfair to it. And honestly, the line, you pierce my soul, which is what you gasp at, is the line that I have the hardest time swallowing. Mm-hmm. Um because I, I think, don't know. I what think is because, that even okay, mean? Here's, here's what I think. Because, what it's, that coming even from, mean? because it's coming from this character. 
if Mr. Yeah, Elliot wrote right. her a letter that said, you pierced my soul, I roll. Like, oh, well, he doesn't mean but, it. We know he doesn't mean Captain it. Captain Wentworth, who almost has never expressed his emotion to her before, to say it like that. Well, honestly, what does that even – what does it mean, you pierced my you soul? You pierced my soul. I think it means uh, – and he said, doesn't he say to – I mean, I can't think – I think and plan alone for – there's nothing – you have become such a part of me now that every action I take is influenced by you, by where you are, by what you're doing, by what you're thinking. You have not, you have become a part of me. I see. But not like a creepy Frankenstein. You've been sewed onto me, but just every action I take is informed by you. Wow. That's really romantic. I think it's super romantic. I thought it was really beautiful. I think that, there's, I, I don't know. I so enjoyed the romance of this book. Um, we talked about that in part one. I just thought it was so, it starts off tragic and ends happily. And how often does that happen? Usually it's the other way around, right? Hello, Shakespeare. A couple falls in love. You're, you're invested. And then it goes horribly wrong and ends with tragedy. But in, this is the opposite. Well, too, um, I did read this letter to Kevin when I was talking about my own you know, shrinking away from it and being like, oh, I roll, I roll because I can't be sincere. We can't be sincere. It's too sincere for, for 2017. That's a good point. Sincerity is no longer uh, culturally valued as much for me. One of the reasons it's been so hard for me to do like indivisible and all this like activism stuff is that um, it's really hard to call your senator and be like, I have an honest opinion, sincere opinion to express and I'm very passionate and it feels dorky. I went down to the Boise airport with my sign for the refugees after the travel ban and said, you know, history is watching. And I was like, yeah, and we were chanting. I felt like the biggest goober. Oh man, it was so hard to be so sincere about it. But I was like, you know, these people are like trapped in limbo in Ethiopia. I can feel like a goober for two hours for them. But it was so hard. I mean, it's so hard. We've allowed ourselves to, this is something I've talked to several of my friends about. We have allowed ourselves the luxury of complacency for a long time. Being jaded. Too jaded to try. Yeah, like put things on social media and like rail, uh, uh, but it's like the time for that is over. Like you got to actually go out there. You have mm-hmm. to, like, we, Bay and I stood on a street corner this afternoon in Alton, Alexandria, because um, uh, the National Policy Institute, which is a white supremacy um, organization that supports peaceful ethnic cleansing, whatever that is, um, opened an office in Alton, Alexandria. And so we joined a, a protest on the street corner across the street against them being like, this is not what our community is about. And I just find it empowering. I mean, at the end of the day, you can't, we can't just like sit here and just talk amongst ourselves about it. Um, You have to put action and, you know, not to be like, and that is just like what Captain Wentworth does. (laughs) You have to put your money where your mouth is at some point. And he's not afraid to do that, but it's hard. Like you said, it's really hard. I've had first experience with how hard it is. It is um, hard. And when I was at the Women's March in, in D.C., when people were chanting and stuff, you'd, I'm like, I'm not a chanter. It, it's kind of like line dancing. If everyone's yeah. doing it, I feel like a dork, <laughs> you know? But you, gotta, you have to find that sincere pumpkin patch and just hope that it's – you know, do you like that Peanuts reference there? I had never seen that the great, great pumpkin. pumpkin. 
You have to find the most sincere pumpkin patch. But you know what? Linus is a good example of sincerity because Linus is always sincere. That is a quality, like I said, it's a quality that is no longer culturally valued. But, and I think well, that- Exactly. And he's not afraid to be who he is. He's not afraid to carry that fucking blanket around with his thumb. Yeah, he's like, what? And then he like uses it as a lasso and shit. Like, it's awesome. <laughs> it's almost, it's like just as brave to be polite and nice and a sincere person as it is to like be sarcastic and snarky, you know? It's you're being more authentic. I don't know. I just think that we've gone completely off the rails. But no, that's okay. I think that that letter is not trite. I think it's beautiful. People don't exp- even then. I feel like people did not express themselves like that. No, that's absolutely that true. They did. Well, I feel bad. You know, I read it to Kevin because I was trying to process it, and and I said to him, I was like, "You pierce my soul. What does that even mean?" You know, and. Uh, it's been funny. You know how people in long-term relationships or long-term couples, you know, you just say stuff to amuse each other. You know, you're just saying mm-hmm. all this crazy weirdo stuff, like goofy stuff to it, just m- amuse each other. And Kevin and I are always referencing each other's metaphorical cheese. So like, I'm going to squeeze your cheese. No, I'm going to squeeze your cheese. You stay away from my cheese. And, um, <laughs> I'm not sure this is something you want to admit on the uh, on <laughs> No, because it was so funny because so then he comes in when they he's like, I love you. And I'm like, I love you. And he's like, you pierce my cheese. We've <laughs> 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 got to get I know I keep saying this, but Kristen, we gotta get Kevin back on the podcast. Come on. He's not gonna come. He he feels he's intruding on sincerity. But he is the most sincere out of all of us. I don't know. That's true. Okay, so that's fair. Captain Wentworth, if if it was modern day, he would like write songs in his room alone at night that he'd never show to anyone. (laughs) Right? (laughs) He'd like have a guitar. Here's Um, my soul. I don't know. (laughs) I think we're getting a little punch drunk. I think we should maybe wrap up Persuasion. Oh, but we didn't talk yeah. about the movie yet. I wanted to talk about the movie. Well, we could do a whole other podcast on the movie. We could. We could do a third Persuasion episode. We could do a fourth because we got to talk about the Amanda Root and we got to talk about the BBC. Wait, does this mean I have to watch the Amanda Root one? Yeah. Hey, can I get that from Netflix? Uh, I think you can get it from Amazon Prime. I watched it. It was pretty good. I, I've been... I, I was a little hard on how do you say it? Sharon Hines, Sharon Hines. Oh wait! Oh yeah, that was a pretty dramatic moment on the Facebook page too. The, our Facebook page? It might have been on mine when I shared it was that yours. status, and I was like, "Oh yeah, Kristen doesn't like him," and people were like, "What?" what? I didn't respond, but I, I almost know. wanted to just—I t- almost wanted to just type back. What's wrong with his face? No, no. You know what? It's like, Siren, why the long face? <laughs> right? Look, no, okay. Very- you know what? No, we shouldn't face shame. But here's no, the thing. We I think face he's shame. a great actor, but he does look weird. I, I will once again admit that, you know, I always thought he was like kind of strange looking. I mean, he was strange looking. He was man's raider. But when I watched the Amanda Root version, he I, he did grow on me. I do see how he's handsome. I, I don't mean to be like, oh, he's so ugly. He's He's just his own flavor. Is yeah. there sort of like he, Benedict Cumberbatch? I, you know, I you think kind of, he's a great actor. I mean, he's Julius Caesar in Rome. He's like these the king beyond the wall king yes. in Game of Thrones. You know, he plays. He's uh, Mr. Ro- Rochester. What the hell is that guy's name? In Jane Eyre, 
Is it Rochester? Is he Mr. Rochester? Oh, girl, yes. The one with what's her name? Samantha. He plays Mr. Rochester in January. But to me, he is not – I do not see him as a romantic lead. I'm not saying that there are not people who swoon for him because clearly there are among my friend group because they were very vocal. Um, But he just – to me, I do not see him as a romantic lead. But this is an older version, so he'll be younger. Yeah. Yep. He's he's younger and he's he's pretty good looking. Let's do a third Persuasion episode where we discuss the two movie adaptations. Let's do it. Um, and we just will wrap up by saying that, uh, these crazy kids, you know, he writes the letter, she goes outside, he's there, he, he escorts her, you know, and her brother's like, her brother-in-law's like, here, I, know, and I do need to go speak to the gun shop owner. Yeah, the gunsmith, <laughs> he's left it unwrapped until the very last moment. It's kind of a cute detail. It is funny. It's like Charles. Oh, God. Um, you know, uh, so Anyway, they um, they get together and they retire. What's so amazing about this is it Austin actually says he's like they retire to the comparative the privacy or privacy or whatever of the gravel walk. Yes, that Kristen and I have walked down arm in arm. It's the place you can go in Bath. The gravel walk. I mean, the entire city still exists, but the gravel walk still exists. And when I went the first time with Kevin, I, I we couldn't find it. You know, it wasn't labeled or anything. And we had to ask this like woman on the street who was like walking her dog. We were like, do you know of a gravel walk? And she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, like, oh, I'm not quite sure. You know, like whatever, cute British. And then she's like, wait, I think there's a gravel walk this way. And then we found it and there was the teeniest, tiniest sign that said gravel walk. And I was like, oh my God here we are. And we walked down it. And even though I, I wasn't a total convert to the persuasion romance, I, I was so moved. I mean, it really was quiet and it really was romantic and, and, and we held hands and, Oh my God, you guys are fun. Was the gravel walk? I mean, it was really, they were, they were walking there. I'll have to see if I can find the picture. I think I put it on Facebook, the picture that our friend took of uh, you and I walking down the gravel walk. Yeah, there we are walking down the gravel walk. Yeah, oh my I'm, god, we totally did. Yeah, we're yeah, Rachel, our fan, our friend Rachel, who's also yeah, our I'm fan. Really, Rachel, yeah, uh, you and I are a much more epic romance than you and Kevin. Yeah, everybody knows. <laughs> everybody knows. We, we are potential sister wives. <laughs> I mean, shh. <laughs> yeah, it's a good thing. I have the headphones plugged in, so they can't hear. <laughs> so, so um so i mean i don't know uh, if you want to talk about they have this final conversation where wentworth admits he was like and was like you know the advice that lady russell gave me was good or bad based on how the situation turned out i mean yeah it's true like you, you know, don't know what's gonna happen let's save it let's save this for episode three we'll talk about the end of the book and the movies because this episode is now going to be super long as it is. And we still have to go down to the weed chief, although we did kind of talk about our letter. But still, yes. we have we have new business to discuss. Okay. So new business, the weed chief, knock, knock, knock. Hello. Here's the mail. The weed chief. Um, our, our, oh, our, I have a lovely letter for you two girls. That's right. Our fan. Oh, that was awful. I'm sorry. Louise had had mentioned that, uh, yeah, you were sort of like Cockney. It was awful. Sort of like, How about Eliza? Your letter, ladies. Thank you very much for coming to the Wheat Sheep. <laughs> Hello, Governor. <laughs> oh Lord, it's like a little Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> step in time. Anyway, so um, yeah, our friend Louise, who said she's been waiting to email us till she, you know, felt a, the, it was the right time. You know, she was. She said, you know, very politely. She's like, oh, Kristen, you know. 
you politely disagree, you know, this is, you know, Wentworth, you know, was understandable and, and give, give him, give him a shot, consider. And, you know, I forwarded it to Maggie and uh, Maggie read it and it was so politely put and Maggie wrote back and Maggie said, well, it sounds like she's agreeing with you. But she's actually agreeing with me. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and just a note, Louise, don't you don't have to wait until you feel strongly about something to email us. <laughs> you can just email us anytime. It's cool. We People like hearing from you guys. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, what else are we doing? I mean, what else are we doing? Yeah. So thank you for your letter. Other new business. Hopefully I can edit it out. My new dog was barking. She's, she's Kristen she's got seen. a dog. Her name is Suki. And she's a Suki. Her name she's is Suki. Suki. So then, of course, I was like Suki True Blood Suki, which then would be like Suki or Suki Gilmore Girls Suki, but it's really none of the above. Is that how you pronounce it, Suki or Suki? Well, in um, True Blood, they're all in Louisiana. So they all say Suki, right? Really? I think it's like the same name. Uh, Spelled the same. Well, it's it's like cookie, but with an S instead of a C. Yeah. But in Gilmore Girls, it is pronounced. They do say Suki. You are um, legit. And it's Melissa McCarthy who plays Suki. So, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, her name was Susie when I got her from the shelter. We drove down to Pocatello. We, we can all agree. It was very dramatic. Apologies to anyone named Susie in our listening audience. What's that? I said that name is stupid. No, no, no. Um, I had a, a Shih Tzu named Susie in, uh, in high school, college age. I mean, she lived at home, but she was my dog. Are you serious? And, what are the chances yeah, and of I that? Would, I was like, I mean, she was like the best dog. And I was like, it would be disrespectful for the memory to the memory of my Susie to have another Susie who looks so similar to my first Susie because she's also black and white Shih Tzu. So I I was like, I'll change her name to Suki. It sounds similar to Susie. She won't be too confused. And Suki's a really really weird coincidence. Oh, this dog is adorable. Can we got to post a picture of your dog? Can we post a picture of the dog? Unless you think people would be pissed off because I don't want to, I mean, I know it's an Austin related Facebook page. I mean, we could put an Austin quote or something like you pierced um, my soul. First of all, I mean, it's our Facebook page, so I don't really care. Second of all, <laughs> no, I think people like to see little things about – I think people like I'm to honest. hear about us. And I think people like seeing puppy pictures, right? Yeah, everybody I, – I got more likes on that photo than I got – I think on my 10th anniversary post. Kristen, Kristen, we are living in the dark timeline. If we can post a picture of a cute dog, we got to do it. People, that's what the public wants. So I don't think there's any problem with the, we have, yes, we have a Jane Austen podcast, but we are also, are we not human? Do we not want to see puppy pictures? Do we not bleed? If we pierce us, if you pierce our soul, soul, do we not bleed? (laughs) I was drinking gnarly head, the old vine Zen. I like gnarly head. I like it almost as much as the apothic red. No, you guys, um, I had the worst wine. Oh my God. So my birthday party, I, as promised, I got a box of wine and I got a Moscato, which is usually pretty good. This was so sweet. Sweet. They're sweet. And I had to finish off the box because people were like, oh, this wine's terrible. And then I felt bad. Um, so I finished it tonight, but I don't recommend it. All righty. So well, sorry that you missed so I'm glad that you enjoyed your wine. <laughs> Thank you. Mine was not great. Um, and uh, okay. So great times. Thank you, Maggie, for uh, changing my life with your read of the letter. Aw, you're so welcome. You know, if you want me to read to you anytime, you can just call me out. <laughs> about before bed? Can you read to me? Oh, it'll be, you know, I tried to find these to put them on the Facebook page, um, that there's a coffee company 
that did um, – they got British actors to read portions of famous novels, like for your coffee break. Oh. And they had Dominic West reading the proposal scene from Pride and Prejudice. And they actually wow. – I think Dan – no, the guy who played um, – who married Emma Thompson, who was in Sense and Sensibility, who played um, – Oh, Willoughby? Uh, yeah. He's one of them. I think Dan Stevens maybe. Oh, Really? I can't remember if it was him or not. Anyway, it's a it's not an American or British website. It's some European country, and I can't get it to load on my computer. <laughs> but I'd listened to them years before, and it's just like hot British men reading you romantic literature. Okay, if you can check it, if you can try to find it, get it to work on your computer, go for it. Um, I'm always happy to read to you. And I personally enjoy your readings on the podcast. I think they're wonderful. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you very- I look forward to them. Well, thank you. I'll, I'm, I'm going to be back to torture you uh, soon with more. Well, um, I guess the next you want to do next time, do you want to do a review of the BBC Persuasion? Well, let's talk about both movies and we'll talk about the end of the book. Okay. We'll compare and contrast both movies and we'll talk about the end of the book. That sounds like yes. a plan. So for and now. Maybe because I think we're going to find ourselves dissatisfied with both movies. Perhaps we could do like a, if we were going to adapt it and then do like a dream cast kind of thing. <laughs> That's a good idea. Oh, oh, how about this? Um, Listeners, if you have strong feelings about who you think would be good to cast in a movie version of Persuasion, feel free to email the podcast. And the email is first.impressions.podcast at gmail.com. Great. Okay. So on that note. Excellent. Excellent. On that note, all right. Thanks, guys, for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye.